So you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. It's society. They work for each other, they pay each other, they buy houses, they get married, make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of looking in the mirror at itself. I can't wait for the episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where all the contestants team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. The message of Occupy Wall Street is I would prefer not to play the existing game. We are a socialist party and there are social solutions to the problems. Communal lifestyles, I don't know about that. No one can tell me what to do. Wow. You're a real anarchist. Is Marietta King? I thought we're an autonomous collective. No words for you puppets of the West. Communism forever. God, God those communists are amazing. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I am back in the studio, Dan Platt of Albany, New York. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left-wing perspective for the curious or the committed promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. That's the political struggle, but obviously the goals are the better welfare of everyone. Maximize happiness, all that junk. Uh, the meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, those are the three lefts. Um, back in the studio after a week away, um, I was in Maine. Well, you don't need to know those details so much so. But um, but if you're interested, just give me a text uh, or shoot me a message. Or, you know, like me on Facebook, whatever, and you'll see the pics. But anyway, I'm continuing the subject. Uh, so let's see, it was four weeks ago now that I did a transportation episode, then a kind of housing issues, talking about zoning and property development. And I covered an article about how building luxury housing did, in fact, lead to more evictions around them at least in a particular place like Minneapolis area. In the meantime, in a group I'm in, locally, the local kind of group, as well as probably on the New Urbanist page uh, itself, there's always these, these arguments going back and forth of people showing different housing studies that are done in particular cities and saying like this and acting like this is a slam dunk. So I don't want to fall into that trap and say that the the article I covered last week is also a slam dunk, but it's merely a piece of evidence among many towards, I suppose, my preconceived bias. Cards on the table. Meanwhile, here's someone else who's kind of the, the a, a reflection. So um, this is one of the admins of the, the local group, named Mont Given, and he. So when when there's a post about and this is I'm reading now. Let me back up. Before I go through all of my articles and stuff, let me just talk about that. I'm going to be talk continuing to talk about housing issues, particularly what was mentioned last time was decommodifying housing as a general leftist program. Now I'll go into what that means, more of, the what, more of what that means, as well as what it looks like in policy and activism and so on moving through. But the first hour will be front-loaded with more debunking slash going interrogating the opposition to this policy, even the, using the word decommodifying or just generally what that means and the kind of responses that we're, you might be seeing 
which uh, are usually very, very impotent, though at first glance might seem convincing. So here's, a, to me, a example of that. So first he kind of lays out where he's coming from, where he sees the back and forth uh, when it comes to any kind of post about a new development, because of at least half the posts in this urbanist group is any uh, new housing development, which who's producing it? Capitalist developers. So if you have an anti or resistant or post-capitalist kind of thinking, you don't usually see this as a good thing. You know, this, this market rate housing, if you're a renter, you're going to see or expect it based on also a lot of other people's experience. So it's, you know, plural of, of anecdote is data. Well, actually, no, the saying is the plural of anecdote isn't data. Hmm. But anyway, well, actually, I'll have to get that right later. But, but really, if, 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 if a whole community is crying out that they're being evicted because their neighborhood is being gentrified, meaning new housing is being built via capitalist development, not nonprofits or the state or, or, or some kind of more community-minded developer. So, uh, so someone points out that what we need is affordable housing, not new market rate development often branded as luxury. Other folks point out that building market rate units opens up units in lower income areas and that this is called filtering, or what this process is known of. And along with government subsidized housing, an important piece of the solution to create more affordable housing that both are needed. Uh, and then group says again, that then a few people point out that the response argument two has a classist origin and that we should be skeptical of it which is what I'm going to argue about. So he's been hesitant to weigh in on this because he's not an economist, and he hadn't yet seen the data to back up the connection that he pre-presumes affordable housing. And the market rate more, raising supply lowers the price. You know, classic microeconomic, neoclassical economics 101. Here's a problem. It's not actually based on any real data at least not over the long term as these theories developed. And much like a type of dogma, you kind of cherry pick examples and things that happen here and there to say, look, look, the neoclassical model is right. You, there just needs to be price equilibrium. And there's, it's been pointed out that the kind of filtering thing is it's basically, it's trickle down economics. If we build enough housing for the rich, it will lower prices or create more supply for the poor and their response is like well that's talking about taxes we're talking about houses something a, a commodity but like what's the difference yeah it, yeah they're do different things but just saying that an apple's an apple and an orange is an orange they're both fruit we're talking about fruit here we're talking about economics and commodities and things and things in a market now, of course, as a real, a full leftist, commie like me, wants to take housing and other things with inflexible demand, things we need, absolutely need, out of the market. And that's what kind of decommodifying refers to. Because usually anything that's independently made is kind of a commodity, but a commodity as defined, if I might be frank with it, playing loose with the definition, it's anything that's made for intended sale, okay, on a marketplace. So 
if it's a, since we're in a capitalist market, that means you're you're looking to sell for met to, for maximum maximum profit. While say in a past or in some commu- other type of community that isn't capitalism, doesn't have capitalism, you make a house, you build a house in a group with a group, not in the intention to sell it on a market, but to house people. So decommodifying, loosely speaking, simplifying it out is putting people before profit. It's a simple slogan. Perhaps overly simplistic, but there you go. So now I'll read the article he shares, which is from a site called Full Stack Economics. And the article uh, from last week is titled, How Luxury Apartment Buildings Help Low-Income Renters. It's empirical research, folks. Now, the first example is looking at Helsinki, which is in Finland capital Finland, which has a generous social safety net. It's good. It's a social democracy. So it's very different context than America. And that'll matter because then it'll cover an example from America. And it's quite a stark difference. So, and it's, and it's interesting that the, you know, the poster kind of uses the Helsinki example. He cites it, you know, it takes the, as a summary, but doesn't, doesn't include the part where it says it's to sink Helsinki makes it sound like it's just anywhere or at least like in his post, you know, it's uh, according to the research out of Notre Dame, turns out that building a hundred new market rate units opens up 40 to 60 units in lower income areas. Of course, lower income, what does that mean? Like a middle-class area or does it mean a slum? <laughs> so it's like, so fil- filtering does occur to a meaningful degree, at least in larger cities. Now he's writing that, which I'm going to have to comment on him to say like, that is a misrepresentation because that result is in one socially democratic city with a generous welfare net, plenty of regulations, a lot of other things going on. So let's go through the text. When affordable housing activists see luxury apartment buildings going up in gentrifying neighborhoods, they sometimes assume that the apartment buildings are causing the rents to go up. Oh, what, what baby brains, right? So back in 2015, for example, activists called for a memorandum on new housing construction in San Francisco's Mission neighborhood, which was rejected by voters. This reads like a misrepresentation. I, that's the thing with any capitalist propaganda. There's going to be misrepresentation, if not some kind of half-truth. So I'm going to fun- read this in a funny voice for that reason. Most economists believe that this gets the causality backwards, and rents on existing apartments would have risen even faster if apartment buildings hadn't been built. I've never heard an activist make that kind of argument, by the way. Uh, But affordable housing activists don't always find this convincing. In their mind, building more luxury housing only helps rich people. Well, it's like saying, I'm eating, and that helps uh, like other people who are starving like it, it's 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 like finish your plate. There are children starving in Africa. Last month, a trio of Finnish economists published a new research paper that brings empirical evidence to bear on this important question. Oh, it sounds so great! The Finnish government has a population register that collects data about where individuals live, so they have much better data. The researchers got access to this data and were able to follow individuals as they moved from place to place in the Helsinki metro area. This data allowed them to trace exactly how the construction of new luxury apartment buildings in high-end neighborhoods impacted broader housing in the market. 
When a new apartment comes onto the market, it starts a chain reaction. Well, this is the filtering in Cognito. Uh, often, the person who rents the new apartment is moving out of an old one uh, in the same metro area. That creates a vacancy that's filled by another renter. That person, in turn, may be vacating a third apartment. So it's a moving chain. But that's assuming everyone's like moving at the same time, which is, is not the case. Or at least it's something that needs like the frequency of movement. Shouldn't there be a goal of people to settle down, you know, to, to actually like chill and, and, and get out of the future shock? Uh, so crucially, the Finnish researchers found that this process quickly reaches the lower income neighborhoods for each new hundred new centrally located market rate units. Roughly 60 units are created in the bottom half of the neighborhood income distribution through vacancy. Even more remarkable, 29 vacancies are created in neighborhoods in the bottom quintile of the income distribution. So the very bottom level, 30 vacancies for every 100 new. Why not build 100 low-income units then? Why does it have to trickle down like that? You have to build 100 market rate to get 30 open, affordable housing. Seems like a raw deal to me. Uh, but, but hey, it's, it's, it's sort of substantial. It's not zero. It's not nothing. This is all assuming that any new construction isn't bulldozing and replacing affordable units that already existed. So let's say you have a building with, say, 30 affordable units in it, and you demolish it to build... 30 luxury units, <laughs> I guess, I guess uh, oh yeah, and only a fraction of those luxury units will free up uh, lower income units. It's a negative result for affordable units. So uh, this means that the Helsinki housing market isn't divided into hermetically sealed tiers. The line between luxury and non-luxury housing is fuzzy, which I will relate was something I pointed out last time where whether it's in the affordable category or luxury, it's still all technically market rate housing, housing in a marketplace. So overall, it's kind of the wrong argument. I mean, it's, it's inside the liberal Overton window, acceptable debate of are you for affordable units or uh, luxury units? There's still market rate. And the only reason that something can be affordable is if it's subsidized by the government. So that's really like affordable is code for subsidized by the state, so it's not fully social housing, but it's government money, taxpayer money, going to private owners who are still landlords. Uh, let's see. So that's at least how it works in Helsinki. What about the United States? Over the last couple of years, Notre Dame economist Evan Mast has been doing similar research in the U.S., though he, does, he lacks the kind of data that the defendants had. So he looked at housing markets in 12 of the largest American cities. The U.S. doesn't have that kind of government population register. So instead, MAST obtained data from a private marketing database called Infrater Data Solutions. But we used the same basic methodology as the Finnish economists and got similar, but if less, dramatic results. So what results were there? So MAST found that 67% of the people who moved into a new luxury apartment building, they came from the same metro area. Of these, only 20% of them who moved into a luxury apartment came directly from neighborhoods with below average incomes. Average income, not median income, I guess. Uh, I'm just picking, Cherry. I'm just picking at it. 
But that set off a moving chain that was more likely to reach lower-income neighborhoods. By the sixth link in the chain, I guess that's how far you have to go, uh, 40% of movers were coming from neighborhoods with below-average incomes. Okay. It's hard to interpret because it's not the same metrics as the Finnish one, which was a little bit more easier to understand. But by saying that they're coming from a neighborhood with below-average incomes, meaning it's more affordable. But, of course, see, the whole point is that even the quote-unquote affordable housing is still unaffordable. You can't afford it on a working-class income, at least a single one. You need two or three. Faster filtering. Housing policy experts have long talked about filtering as a process that creates affordable housing. The idea is that housing stock becomes less desirable as it ages, and older buildings become a kind of de facto affordable housing in cities with a steady supply of new homes. Oh boy, does that make no sense to me. Um, why? Because houses are not like cars, although they can degrade with time and lack of maintenance. A house if properly maintained, does not have a 10-year or 300,000-mile uh, use limit kind of thing. Uh, as well, there's the whole, like, old houses, once invent, you know, if invested in, can actually be worth even more than a new house. So it's like, it's it's talked in a very general way, which is like you're talking about, and, and this is something with a lot of like half-truth kind of articles, it's like you're talking about exceptions. And exceptions prove that there's a problem. You know, that, that the exception is like the good thing or the good outcome or the good version of filtering. Because filtering plays out over decades, it might seem like it has little relevance to the addressing today's housing shortage. But the new research on a housing change shows that new housing has a much more immediate impact on the lower rungs of the housing ladder. Building a new market-rate apartment, building frees-up space in older and less desirable neighborhoods in a matter of months, not decades. Though this article is just saying this. But I read lots of stuff that just say things. So Another way to think about it is that housing chains are the mechanism that makes filtering happen. As a city builds new high-end apartment buildings, it creates vacancies. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I had an issue with this, saying... The sit as a city builds new high-end apartment buildings. The city isn't building anything. But by city, do you mean the city government, the people of the city? It, it completely erases class distinctions, that everyone's in the same class, there's just a matter of different incomes. But different being in a different income bracket is like being in a, on a different planet. You have a completely different set of concerns and interests. So the faster new apartment buildings are constructed, the more these vacancies are created and the sooner, yeah, but not enough of them would be my contention. So this research has clear implications for housing regulation. The housing debate is often framed as a fight between developers who want to build market rate housing and affordable housing activists uh, who want to force, the, force them, <gasps> they're, oh, they're, they're, they're tyrannous, uh, to build affordable housing instead. And that's another like capitalist realism kind of thing where you know, look, uh, developers, they just want to build the market rate housing. The question is not asked. Why is it they do not want to build anything else? Why don't they build affordable units? Why don't they build just normal kind of units? Or to them, this is normal. Why is a luxury or market rate, whatever market rate means in this context, why? 
Why is not asked? Uh, but in reality, these goals are not in conflict. Building more record rate housing exerts downward pressure on rents up and down the income scale. People who are truly concerned about housing affordability should cheer the construction of market rate housing, including luxury apartments. Yes. Nothing like telling someone who's poorer than you uh, what they should be concerned about. Uh, if only they were smart and charming and, and extra and wonderful as you, they would know better. They would own property. <laughs> but here, here's the trick. Everyone can't be an owner in this system. Everyone cannot be living in luxury housing. Someone has to live in the, the, the poor housing, it seems. So moving on to a, I'm probably doing this out of order, but this one, this is just the order I'm going in, which is, but it's linked. So it's a Bloomberg piece, very short. And it's just a quick little thing about how home building is just growing exponentially more expensive. Uh, there's just a big doubling in price happening. Uh, so from lumber to paint to concrete, the cost of almost every single item that goes into building a house is soaring. In some cases, the price happen increases top 100% since the pandemic began. There are any number of factors at play. There's mortgage rates continue to be zero or near zero. Um, this has been the case since the 70s, and that's kind of why we've all had to buy things on credit if we're going to buy things at all. Let's see, city dwellers rush to suburbs, to, which apparently is a thing, um, but how many gross people are doing that? By gross, I mean like the, the gross number of people, not that they are gross. Um, but I, I do think it's gross to actually move from the city to uh, suburbs, unless it is a small town, but, you know, whatever. Too shortage of materials. But the simplest explanation is that there's just too much demand for builders and their suppliers to handle. All of this makes housing an extreme manifestation of the inflationary pressures percolating through the booming U.S. economy. Oh, it's booming. Don't you feel it booming? Now, yes, there is growth. But who is it going to? And if it causes inflation, you know, there's this comic of uh, that I liked where it's this, uh, it's like neoclassical economics in a nutshell where uh, it's a guy reading the paper and he says like, oh, inflation's up. And they're like, oh, that's bad, isn't it? Like... Oh, uh, yeah, but uh, high inflation means it's good for this. And it's like, oh, well, that's good. Oh, yeah, but it's bad for this. You know, it's bad. It's causing unemployment. Oh, yeah, unemployment is bad. Oh, yeah, no, but it means uh, lower labor costs. Uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, and it just goes back and forth for like 10 panels. So this mentions that in Boise, Idaho, one of the hottest housing markets in the country, which godsmacked me, like, what? Why? Would a lot of people be moving to Boise? Um, is there some new booming industry there? Well, uh, I typed in Boise, Idaho population growth or growth, and I didn't go through every single thing that came up, but like they all had the same headline. They all seem to have the same tone of just reporting that there is population growth in Boise and uh, in reporting on where people are moving from. They're mostly moving from the Pacific Coast where housing prices are too high. But who are these people who can pick up their lives and move to Boise, Idaho? Like, is there some glut of jobs and unemployment there? My assumption is that these are people who have telejobs of sorts, or they're jobs that can be done anywhere because of the internet. They're not making things, they're not 
providing services to others uh, that can't be produced online, uh, shared online, I guess. But I'd like to know more about that, I suppose. But I think it's something that we already kind of know about. People move around in the information economy because, hey, who needs to actually be tethered to place uh, for a particular reason? So it goes through like the cost of a house. There's this really nice kind of graphic thing where it's like you look at each of the parts of the house, foundation, the lumber, and it's uh, kind of the average house price, excluding labor costs, by the way. So it's just the materials. So usually the materials are the cheaper part of the building of doing construction and the labor is the highest. Now they're kind of e maybe even equal. Let's see, paint and drywall are the same, but otherwise, let's see. Buyer's cost goes up three hundred thousand. Let's see, the lumber was went up the most. It went from like thirty-two to one hundred four thousand. Yeah, and so like then the 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 whole price, you know, cost of the price, you know, it goes up two hundred thousand dollars. And this is some houses uh, was I don't know if this is the average house price. Anyway, let's move on. On to another piece of capitalist propaganda from E21, which is the Manhattan Institute. This is non a neolib think tank. Not fans, but uh, when I put in decommodifying housing, this was like number two. And I use DuckDuckGo, by the way, not Google. But it still came up pretty high up. Um, so it's called decommodifying. That's in quotes, by the way, so it shows that they're not taking the term seriously. Uh, housing and other magical thinking, um, though they don't seem to cover other magical thinking, but whatever, it's a title. It's written by an Eric Cover, December 11th, uh, 2019. So yeah, just to assert, so it's not a, like a recent article that was being shared, but it begins the, it's kind of the beginning of this conversation in the national uh, public and uh, a kind of recent addition to this trend uh, will be covered later. Like how cities are, particularly progressive cities, are in fact enacting this policy of um, social democrats. So, okay, first, beginning to read, and I will do it in my voice. Decommodifying the nation's rental housing is a hot topic in left wing circles. The argument essentially is this housing should not be commodified through market mechanisms, but rather treated as a universal human right. To that end, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ms. Tax the Rich herself, has proposed a Place to Prosper Act, which includes a national cap on annual rent increases, a prohibition on evictions without just cause, and a right to counsel for tenants facing eviction. But you'd think your right to counsel is a constitutional right that should be there anyway. Not to be outdone, Senator Bernie Sanders has proposed a Housing for All plan, which also includes national rent controls, just cause limits on evictions, and legal assistance for households facing eviction. It would also repeal the Faircloth Amendment, which limits construction of new federally funded public housing. Right, so you can actually build social housing again. It's, it's interesting, that the Faircloth Amendment. I wonder when that was put in. Probably in the 80s? Not sure. I can click on the link. But I want to continue. And the reason why I'm including this is, well, first I want to point out that these policies, what I just read out, are their housing regulations that do help tenants, but I would not consider them to be decommodifying housing. But maybe, 
it's moving us towards that direction. As all change is pretty much granular anyway. And maybe I can relate this to a broader segue into a conversation I had last night on Twitch with a uh, Mr. Nobodies. And he's a gamer, and but he wanted to kind of do streams exploring philosophical topics via gameplay. And he wanted to do that with communism. So he asked on uh, the LeftTuber forum on Facebook, uh, asking if someone would come on to help him with this and, and explain an actionable form of a communist philosophy. Because otherwise, all the conversations about using communism uh, is all about kind of the big utopian goals, the policy, but he is unclear of a way of doing communism. And interestingly enough, and this kind of goes to the heart of like maybe some a lot of the complaints I have about social democracy or democratic socialists. And the reason, you know, and it's it's almost the philosophical reasoning why someone on the right, regardless of what their actual goals are, will say, these social democrats who just want to regulate rent, not the ability, not like the, the, uh, the relationship of renter and landlord, like that isn't, it's changing, but it's not, it's, you're not abolishing it, you're not getting rid of it, you're not outlawing it, you're not, you know, putting everyone in social housing. But you're, but you, it's gradual change, and it's like that's doing communism because it's kind of eroding. Because what 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 I got to with him, and it's kind of the best way I could explain it to him is like, okay, there's the goal of classlessness, and all other left wing arguments or policy is it's an argument about how to get there, to erode to classlessness. So any doing communism or leftism is anything that erodes the separation of classes and the, and the dynamics that are there, inequality being pretty much one of the main effects. So even though, to me, you know, in first reading, rent control and just cause eviction, it's, it's certainly positive. But I wouldn't put it classified as decommodifying. But this guy's calling it that because he's just some neolib moderate or a right winger even but he and, it, and it's so let's go let's go through his rhetoric so so something to think about as the nation wrote recently in the magazine decommodifying housing quote will require both protecting tenants and restricting the profits of developers and real estate groups unquote while all who favor decommodification favor limiting landlords profits none can adequately answer the question of who once the battle is over, is actually going to pay to maintain rental housing. This seems like a sensible thing to ask, but it's all, it, it's pre-proposing pre, uh, pre that you need to maximize profits in order to maintain something. Even though nonprofits basically do, basically they maintain everything that a capitalist won't. We wouldn't need nonprofits. We wouldn't need government spending or social programs if if capitalist production met people's needs and, and solved problems. So none of these proposals take into account the reality on the ground for rental unit owners. Boo-hoo. Real estate has a life cycle. Property depreciates. What? When does property depreciate? When there's crime? When, uh... Well, 
And what rea- yeah, and then this is where it's like, what reality is he living in property depreciating in value? The building will, but here's the thing. A lot of local government make it their actual like mission, uh, their, their raison d'etre, uh, to ensure that property never depreciates or to prevent it from depreciating as much as possible. The building will need reinvestment, and that reinvestment enables owners to raise rents. By reinvest- Why not reinvesting so they can just charge the same amount? But by reinvesting in the building, housing is kept occupiable, and, that, and that's his contention. Totally disputed by me. Uh, in 2016, study published by scholars at the Hudson Institute, for example, looked at units that in the period between 80, 1985 and 2013 were affordable to very low-income households as defined by the U.S. Department of Housing, or HUD. Of the units that provide such affordable rental housing, about 20% were affordable at least 80% of the time. Two-thirds of the units that were affordable at some time in the period were affordable between 20 and 80% of the time. When such units were not affordable, quote-unquote, they were owner-occupied or rented for higher rents. It's likely that at these times the units experienced reinvestment. So he's saying that housing is only affordable if it's not being invested in, meaning subquality. Decommodification activists uh, advocates prioritize protecting incumbent tenants from rent increases. They may not be able to pay over allowing this market-driven life cycle of housing deterioration and operating, and its corresponding rent changes to play out. <sighs> yes. Oh, no. Decommodification, it's interfering with the market. Consequently, many rent-controlled units would never see rent increases large enough to support private reinvestment. Yes, because Manhattan just, you know, when, when they were rent-controlled units, they, they just, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're terrible, right? <laughs> Over time, such units would deteriorate and might become unlivable. Uh, emphasis on the might. It's not like he actually has data to back any of this up, right? So Senator Sanders is sensitive to, uh, to this point. His plan would cap rent increases at 3% or 1.5 times the rate of inflation, but allow landlords, so that's your keeping capitalist mode of production, capitalist relations when it comes to housing, totally intact, right? But at the same time, look at the way this guy writes about this, you know, that if you restrict maximization of profits, not just profits themselves, like, you know, that you can still make a profit, but just restricting the maximization, you know, you can't, stopping a landlord from buying that second boat that will s- prevent them from maintaining it and oh, this breaks down the mode of production the, the how, how 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 it works so maybe we could have a new system of housing come about so it it's, it has that effect you know this reminds me dear listeners um a fun little historical fact that you know, why, why are we blockading Cuba? What was Castro's first big act, uh, or the Cuban government, the new you know, revolutionary Cuban government, what was their first act that really tipped American, the American government's opinion that, like, okay, we need to shut this revolution down? You know, at first it was actually supportive of Castro, and then he did something that was like, we got to shut this down. You know what Castro did? Great, great authoritarian dictator, rent control. Established rent control. It was the first act of the government, not the very first back, but I mean, it was the major, first major policy where it's like, we're going to help the tenants. 
because this is something the majority of our supporters are crying out for. And this was where it's like, communism! Very simple dynamic. Very similar dynamic. The U.S. has real housing affordability issues. Oh, I'm glad he admitted it. According to Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies in 2017, about a quarter of all renters, that's out of like uh, you know, 10, 11 million out of uh, 43 million renter households, were severely cost-burdened, meaning they paid more, more than half of their income for housing. An additional 10 million were moderately cost-burdened, meaning they pay more than 30%, but less than half. And then there's the severely cost-burdened, uh, which were concentrated below the $30,000 income, and the moderately were spread through the greater range of incomes up to 75000 So you kind of need to be above $75,000 if you're going to count as middle class, or even lower middle class. However, direct or indirect efforts to give low-income renters more cash for housing exasperates the housing supply crunch in high-cost coastal metropolitan cities. It's, it's the, you, when, subsidies, it's, it's exasperating the supply by actually allowing people to stay in housing, right? They should all just have to move to a cheaper city, which is where exactly? Arkansas? Oklahoma? The Dakotas? Is it is on some island somewhere? Americans at all income levels would be better served if the demodification... And, and again, like, no, no, it's like... It's, well, you know what? A lot of the essays I read kind of end like this, so maybe it's wrong to say it's only the capitalist propaganda that does this, but it's just like the last article, it says, like, these, you know, activists or the, or the decommodification movement, in this case were to turn to its its state and local activism away from rent control and public ownership toward replacing restrictive zoning with a framework that generally provides housing for all. It does not go into what changes in zoning should be made. But that certainly throws a lot of shade on the previous conversation from the previous housing episode about, you know, how if we allow for more upzoning that will increase housing supply and thus increase more, you know, all types of housing, including the affordable. So all these arguments kind of tie together. And they also happen to be exactly what the capitalists want. The fat cats. The corporate, corporate oligarchy. You know, everyone hates the corporate oligarchy, right? And yet, so many will use their rhetoric, their talking points when talking about these issues. Okay, so for the rest of the hour, I will now cover, uh, I'm still not covering, like, actual decommodification policy. That will be the next hour. Okay, look forward to it. I'll end this hour with something like, uh, I'll call this the landlord question. So this is a, a Reddit page. Oh, no, Reddit. I've never used, I've actually never used Reddit. It's not really a source because, you know, it's not like there's some people aren't, providing, you know, sources and, and, uh, and uh, of course, not real, even real names. But I'm, uh, I'm illustrating a, a conversation here on the, on the other side of things, so that's, you know, landlord's bad. And that if, if there are compassionate uh, or certain property owners that say that are mentioned, you know, that they're the exceptions. Exceptions prove the rule as much as not. Um, they don't, they don't uh, erase the majority. 
So the question is, posted by a Jacob Mori Sound, and this is about a month, a year ago. The question is, do landlords perpetuate poverty? So an edit that he gives is, does the existence of landlords perpetuate poverty? I understand that if someone decided to rent out their spare room for below market price, they would be marginally alleviating poverty. But as long as landlords aim to maximize profits, I believe that they're perpetuating it. I also want to mention that in uh, my favorite, one of my favorite books, um, The Pattern Language, he kind of points out that um, good housing design will include a rentable room. But points in his writing, or it's a group of people actually, they point out that the only, it's not that it's ethical, but the, it's less unethical and it's more tolerable and humanistic that all renting should occur face-to-face. And by face-to-face, meaning the the owner of the building, the, the person you're renting from, is right in front of you, uh, is, a, is a neighbor, is part of the community. And that the only ethical renting is rooms. So that you, know, you have spaces that can be flexible and change and that can accommodate people moving through. Okay. Like an Airbnb, but of course way less corporate. So here are the kind of premise. So I think to support the continuing existence of landlords, you have to disagree with at least one of these statements. Uh, Statement one, the goal of renting out private property is to profit as much as possible. Two, landlords profit by charging as much as possible for rent. Three, charging as much as possible for rent keeps rent high. And by the way, this isn't just like about land or housing. So many things are charged are, are you know rent rentable. Rent is kind of at, at issue here. Uh, four, keeping rent as high as possible makes it incredibly difficult for renters to put their paychecks towards savings. That's especially as wages are kept as low as possible in the same time. Five, when renters can't save enough to buy their own property, they have to keep renting. Statement six, it is in the landlord's best interest than to keep renters poor. Seven, landlords perpetuate poverty. And eight is finally the ethical conclusion that perpetuating poverty is bad. So I'm hoping someone will argue against these statements or point out their flaws so I can improve them. I don't think every person who is a landlord is a bad person because it's not really a class because there's like petty and capitalist versions of this. I just think it's bad that they're profiting off to keep people poor. Decommodifying housing shifts the goal from profit as much as possible to house as many people as possible, which combats poverty instead of continuing it. So the the first response here is, it's important to point out that landlords do not make money by providing housing. And this is the spicy take here uh, from an anarchist. They make money by denying housing which is the case of like anyone who's really renting all property. This is a, this is a base anarchist take that private property ownership is about denying other people's access to something, not really just like I'm using this because obviously owning something does not mean you're using it. If you have use rights to it and that's what you consider to be private property, well, then you would, you should support a really large restriction on what, property is and what that's things you use so it's not so much ownership that matters but use right 
user rights. But it's about denying other people's use rights. So it's more like a, like I have, um, what is it called? Special use rights? Well, there's another word to use. So he points out, uh, landlords do not create housing. Construction workers and developers do. Because a developer could be the state, could be a community, doesn't have to be a capitalist. So the landlord simply buys what they build, uh, which could also be done by an individual or a housing co-op. Because the landlord sees the property as an investment and not a home, they're willing to pay more. Uh, they also buy multiple homes, taking them off the market. This results in higher home prices as a simple result of supply and demand. So, here, then, then, so that's using the supply and demand rhetoric and turning it around. That actually when houses are bought by a, not so much a developer, so we're not just talking about the creation and production of it, but the buying of housing with uh, rent. Because, I mean, if you, the more houses that are bought by someone who intends to rent them, that's the less housing stock that can be bought by people who want to own it. Think of that. Uh, combine this increase in price caused by property speculation with the fact, and that's the first time this has been mentioned so far, uh, with the fact that renters pay a significant portion of their income towards rent, uh, which builds them no equity and therefore significantly hinders their ability to save, and you see why rent is in so many ways a poverty trap. The landlording system keeps people poor and property expensive. It is a poor solution for housing needs. So here's... um. So, next comment. Let's say I decide to become a landlord. I buy a lot. I build an apartment building and then rent out all the units. How am I perpetuating poverty? If I hadn't built the building, my tenants would, wouldn't be living rent-free. They would either be homeless or renting an apartment This or that is either more expensive or crappier. We know this because if they had a better option, they would have chosen it over the one that I'm giving them, which is you know, just psh, terrible logic there. So here are some responses to that. Uh, the lot is already there, right? The materials and manpower already existed too. So the only reason that apartment building exists is because one, we started gatekeeping resources, and two, someone with the proper access to those resources decided that it should exist because it makes them money. So if we eliminate the gatekeeping and instead build a society around meeting human needs, then that same building could be built and it wouldn't be beholden to the whims of some capitalist with a savior complex. So there's more of a thread there. But then there's the acknowledgement that any landlord that charges rent that's lower than market value is helping to alleviate poverty because it brings the cost of housing down slightly. My point hasn't been or wasn't that every landlord perpetuates poverty, but that the existence of this type of business does, which then gets you into more systemic structural thinking. So the system perpetuates poverty, says another comment being that you can rent the same thing out forever without ever losing title. Let's face it, most landlords are just recycling garbage units anyway, old buildings from 100 to 150 years ago in many places. The error is in the failure to enforce time limits for getting possession. Renting as such is normally barred after a number of years, and it automatically becomes a purchase. This changes the whole market and eliminates mortgages. And I am all for that as a stepping stone reform. And it's finally, and I see it in some reports by my local government and stuff, to encourage rent to own. But using like market mechanisms or some, in, you know, tax incentive, it's not going to be enough. It has to be something that you legislate, something that's like 
use of force, you know, the isn't the right way of framing it, but it's part of the legislation that if you're going to rent housing, you're that it's part of the social contract that it's something temporary, something that you can pay your debts with, or or that you can use to build up your retirement, or or invest in things in your business. But it's not going to be forever. It's not going to be your whole life or the lifetimes of your tenants. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So some, someone else you know, responds with the neoclassical economics. So this is bad logic saying that uh, charging as much as possible for rent keeps rent high. So by the t- same token, renters want to pay as little as possible, though their buying power is not the same as a supplier's selling power. Uh, please read about equilibrium price. But someone turns this around on them. Yeah, equilibrium price are set by supply and demand. When you're always trying to maximize profit, you want to decrease supply and increase demand. Wanting to decrease supply leads to things like lobbying for restrictive zoning laws that decrease supply of high-density housing and discourage competition. But how do landlords increase demand? Everyone needs housing, and it's not like they can just increase the amount of people but they can maintain the amount of renters by keeping rents so high that renters can't save enough up to own their own property. Renters don't pay as little as possible or as little as possible. This would mean that the property manager is splitting monthly expenses equally among all the tenants and then paying themselves a reasonable wage. The landlord's motivation is profit. The renter's motivation is not freezing to death. Housing shouldn't be a commodity. It's a basic right. It should be treated as such. And that's where the different wavelengths kind of might miss each other, you know. Oh, everyone's just a a rational market actor. But housing is an inflexible demand. You need it to survive. And it's not like everyone has ready access to the ability to build a cabin uh, on cheap land in in the boonies, which you'd think is like some kind of answer. Which I guess is the, if you're rich enough, yeah, you move to Idaho, but then Idaho doesn't have enough housing built there. So the construction industry there is like caught with their pants down. Because, <laughs> I mean, hell, shipping the materials out there is like massive footprint besides the financial footprint. So someone mentions that landlords do all these kind of services, but that's not what the landlord title bestows. That's a building manager. Or property manager but then they kind of do this kind of more of a baby and art kitty kind of take that what perpetuates low incomes is authoritarian control and low demand and high supply for most workers um, so if you want to get people out of poverty reduce authoritarianism so I, maybe this person's an ANCAP or something okay one, one more comment or two the main thing is to keep in mind that all rent collection is a third-party gift the state subsidized the landlord business with eviction statutes, low-cost court enforcement, and summary legal action. If you abolish rent courts and the police's ability to evict or force an eviction, it will vanish overnight. No eviction without good cause and never for money. Now, it's just personal priority to a particular dwelling. And thus, the investment side is gone. Changing the form of housing markets true communism i guess or partly eroding eroding the classes 
Uh, classic case of pushing the employer's corporate responsibility on someone else. There's nothing wrong with someone owned property using that to better their lives. The statement doesn't include some words. It's also better for neighborhoods and quality of life in general. The problem is wages not rising with inflation, not property value rising with inflation. Pick a legit economic thing to be salty about and then go be salty, jump all over the place. Not very mature. And the original OP responds to them. Any universal wage increase is uh, increase in wages is pointless as long as landlords. So it's basically the response to the UBI thing, which I won't get into now. Okay. And one more minute. So uh, uh, thank you for joining me for this first hour. The next hour, which uh, I'll play some music, I guess. I have to bring that up really quickly. And then I'll actually be talking about actual decommodifying policy, though I've hit it a little bit here and there, uh, but nothing too in-depth or clear. So <laughs> just having fun, uh, just trying to stay chill and uh, moving into the fall. I'll see where my what life takes me. But I will definitely, I've committed to continuing the show at least another year. And I'll just keep doing that, continuing the show uh, year after year, though I have been doing more Twitch interviews. Okay.
That's right. We're all about the value of science. Except when you deal with things like facts. Or well-proven facts. Or maybe things that are known to some people as facts. Okay, I'm back for the second hour. Now, on with the topic at hand, uh, from a blogger named Carl Stumberg, uh, written in 2019. Simply an article, Decommodifying Housing, What to Do When the Free Market Can't Provide a Basic Right. So let's get into some actual left-wing reading. The history of American housing over the last decade has been a history of crisis. From the subprime mortgage one to the skyrocketing rents in cities across the country, it is clear that the current system isn't working for a majority. People have offered various solutions, build more, regulate mortgages, or even gas rent control. But at the end of the day, none of them eliminate the underlying driver of all these problems, profit motive. Subprime mortgage crisis came to be in the first place because banks wanted to package subprime mortgages with more desirable mortgages and pretend that they all met a uh, AAA standard. The reason? Profit motive. The rent crisis in cities largely exists because speculators are able to buy up houses that they know will increase in value, which then prices out actual potential tenants. The reason? Profit motive. So even if, so, so that just to relate this to the earlier articles and, you know, to debunking them, that you can have all this uh, vacant units freed up by building more luxury housing. But all of this housing is built in a speculative manner, that it's potential value later, not the value of renting it now. That they, there can be all this housing that's owned and bought up by banks, BlackRock, um, which isn't a bank, but it's an investment corporation, merely because it is the only way of producing profit anymore. Of course, you're not actually making anything. You're simply extracting the value that's made from working people in when they provide all the services that our service economy actually has. So there are some recent examples. Slumlords and blockbusters have used racism for decades to screw over communities of color and fill their own pockets. Once again, this is allowed by a system that puts profit motive over the affirmative right to housing. The free market is creative, and no matter what barriers and regulations are put in its way, it will always find the best way to squeeze an extra penny out of tenants. It just makes, you know, they just have to actually work for it by being creative. Therefore, the solution is not to put another set of regulations in place, right, like Social Democrats mentioned, uh, AOC, Bernie Sanders, uh, is to take housing off the market altogether. This sounds insane given how different that would be from our current system, but as this system fails us time and time again, it is time to look for another one. And we can make that case to our neighbors and to anyone who's complaining about their rent. Uh, that being said, it is a large proposition, no doubt. And it would have to be undertaken carefully and gradually anyway. 
but it's, it's then it's a question of what kind of gradual reforms are we doing? You know, is it rent, rent control isn't actually, is it a step towards these other kinds of uh, things, uh, laws, reforms, changes, or is it actually a separate track that's a big victory but temporary? I hope that, but like in like when in Cuba, you know, step one was rent control, and uh, step uh, five, you know, twenty years later was uh, a majority of people actually own their own home, or if they are renting it, they're renting it for five dollars a month. I hope to lay out some of the basic steps that would have to be taken and answer some basic questions that one might have about systems so radically different from our own. So here are some of the broad steps. First, remove profit incentive. The first step in this process is, and, and so the, those other reforms mentioned, um, scary ones, you know, they do remove profit incentive. But removing profit incentive is not removing the incentive for building housing, though it does remove the prop, like the incentive for building housing in a capitalist market, right? Which is like realism of like, we, we're in a capitalist market and we'll always be in a capitalist market and we can't have anything else. So if you remove the incentive for profit making, you're basically removing all possibility that there could ever be actually like meeting demands for housing. Complete ludicrous thinking. Uh, the first step in this process is perhaps the most crucial and also the most controversial. Once the profit incentive is removed or eroded, any opposition providing housing more equitably becomes a matter of ideological belief rather than self-preservation. But that initial hump is difficult to get over. Home ownership has served one of the primary forms of wealth building in America for years especially since labor, you know, you couldn't actually profit by selling your labor after 1970 or so. And that would have had to been something that could be replaced or at least supplanted with wider economic security. There is also the matter of real estate's place in global finance markets, but their existence there is part of the problem to be solved in the first place. As it would turn out, the trick to removing profit incentive from housing is not particularly radical. The government doesn't have to take over any housing, it doesn't have to abolish private property. It does not have to ruin anyone's livelihood. It just needs to implement one tax, the land tax. So this guy's coming at this in what is called a Georgist fashion. There was an economist from a century and a half ago named Henry George, and one of his main kind of contributions was this proposal of the land tax. Let's dig in, because I don't think I've covered it before. But it's always in the back of my mind when it comes to if we really want to change the dynamics of racism and economic classes, a good place to start is not to raise taxes on the rich, it is to change the taxes. So the idea behind a land value tax is simple. Every house or building gets its value from two things. The actual productive business or a physical house and the land that is built on. Apartments in New York City and San Francisco are not so expensive because they are just that nice, or they are they are expensive because the land underneath them is worth so much. What a land value tax does is separate the value of the building, which is usually kind of flat, though I mentioned how the building of them has increased lately, but it's is it because of the shocks of the pandemic. Anyway, it separates the value of the house or the building from the value of the land, and it taxes the value of the land instead. While property taxes tax both. So it actually lowers taxes for quite a number of people, or property owners who own one building. 
To completely remove the profit incentive, you would have to tax 100% of the rental value, the amount of money that you would make if you were to rent out the plot to someone, either once a month or once a year. At that point, there would be no point for a landlord or real estate holding company to buy a housing plot unless they either wanted to build a business there or live there. Anything else would actually cost the money. When it comes to removing profit incentive, this is an extremely effective method. However, it creates its own set of problems, like most things. The most obvious of which is that it makes expensive areas even more unaffordable to lower-income people. With the tax operating as a super property tax that can never be fully paid off, it would essentially lock working-class people out of wealthy urban areas. Additionally, the lack of a private profit motive could lead to a dearth of landlords and other people who currently administrate and repair properties. While that is a good thing in many ways, it can potentially lead to disrepair, meaning that there would be a transition period where everyone actually does have to learn uh, some uh, handyman skills. Of course, both of these are problems that already exist today, but that does not mean that they don't need to be addressed, and that is done by the following steps towards this goal of decommodification. So first there's the removing of the profit motive through kind of basically 100% tax. But that does that just, you know, you're taxing the profit, not the cost of maintain maintenance. So that's to address or to say like how dare you say that you need to maximize profit to maintain something. You you just need to make a net. You need to balance the budget. Isn't that what they say every um, government needs to do? Democ so, um, so with all the other issues involved with housing, now let's address some of those. Democratizing the supply itself. One of the nice side effects of a land value tax is that it creates a lot of revenue for the government. And this can be used to do a lot of things that were not possible before. Perhaps the most important thing could do was start building public housing. Public housing has had a rough public image problem in America for two major reasons. The first reason was a lack of consistent funding. You know, it would go into disrepair very quickly. It wasn't properly maintained. Usually, money will be given to a city or housing authority to build new public housing, but very little will be given to do uh, given for upkeep. And as a result, the buildings will fall into disrepair. The second reason is the focus on only providing public housing to the poor. Public housing in the 20th century usually had some sort of low-income requirement and sometimes added even more stringent requirements if the wait list was too long. As a result, public housing projects brought with them the stigma of poverty, driving a general lack of interest from everyone else. So, example of Vienna, Austria, has 60% social housing. So it's not just for poor people, it's most everybody. To add on to your historical knowledge of you know, um, public housing in the 60s and, and how it can even harm the black family and that some of these stringent requirements were that the family actually, like, it has to be a broken family. So that even if a family could patch things up, you know, bring the father back into the life, the incentive is actually to keep the father at arm's length and there were stories of like, you know, there would be inspections to ensure that the father wasn't there, that the family was, a, that it was a single mother, because like only a single mother qualified. 
And this is where, like, conservatives will kind of say, see, see, government policy encouraged the breakup of the black family. Yeah, but who wrote that policy? There wasn't exactly uh, a leftist polity in uh, the 50s and 60s. Um, But it doesn't have to be this way, referring to public housing being for the poor. In many European countries, public housing is better funded and has less strings and income requirements. Built in convenient locations that were meant to be attractive and convenient, European public housing is actually able to attract middle-income tenants. In America, this sort of system could be used to allow lower-income people to live in good locations without being driven out by price, whether it be an underdeveloped rural area, an abandoned suburban lot, or a dilapidated city block. The government should acquire the property, build mixed-income public housing, and use those rents for the higher-income tenants to subsidize the rents of lower-income tenants, using revenue from the land value tax to fill in the gaps. The revenue could also be used to better fund existing public housing rather than reducing the overall supply for lower incomes. That would guarantee that at least some low-income people could have residences in traditionally more higher-income areas, even if it's limited. So that's the kind of like thing that was talked about in my last episode about how do we go back to kind of building, having a public housing policy, but without continuing or replicating the, the racism and the segregation that occurred, you know, by only providing, by having stringent income requirements. It's just all, it's, it's almost like gatekeeping, but in reverse. While buildings, a, by building a lot of public housing begins to solve the issue of cost, there is still the vacuum caused by the decrease in landlords and banks who theoretically maintain houses and apartments. Let's say they do. The solution to this problem would, you know, maybe it sounds like a broken record, it would be more democracy. Across the country, there are already hundreds of resident-owned communities which manage their own neighborhoods and apartment buildings democratically, meaning you don't have to be responsible for everything. You can share uh, the chores. And the same system could be applied more widely. Public housing projects could implement that system by default, and in existing neighborhoods, legislation could be passed to allow a group of tenants to buy out their neighborhood. There would be, uh, of course, have to be some sort of guidelines for these mini-governments. Communes, you could say. As complete resident control in the past has led to things like racial covenants and violent reactions against new residents, like homeowners associations. This could be helped along by offering a certain percentage of the land value revenue to resident-owned communities that met a specific set of open community or democratic guidelines so they don't become mini-tyrannies. Once these were in place, things like repairs, maintenance, and services would be decided democratically by the tenants rather than imposed by a landlord. So at this point in the process, the housing system would be significantly more democratic and equitable than it is now, but housing would not be truly decommodified. Decommodification generally means taking an item off the market so that one's ability to get that item is based entirely off of their need for it rather than ability to pay. And that requires making some changes that go beyond anything that has been fully tried yet. So, step three. Well, they're not numbered, but... Now on to the topic of taking housing off the market. Up to this moment in history, there is yet to be a single country that has implemented a true non-market housing system for any extended period of time. Even the Soviet Union had at least a partial private housing stock. So, 
While I try to lay out a general plan for how the next steps would work, there are fewer analogies to use to existing policy. At this point, most housing would be publicly or community-owned, democratically run, outside the world of profit. That would be pretty good. Maybe that's the goal of our lifetime. This would be a good system based on its own merits. Pretty much everyone would be housed and have a say in how their community was run. However, the end goal of decommodification is that distribution is then based on need, not how much money someone has. Thus, even move away from these like, you know, oh, there's this higher income housing, middle income housing, and lower income housing, because those are still classes. You're not eroding it, and you're not achieving, you're not doing communism. <laughs> um, assuming that's something you want to actually think about doing, which I do quite often. Ideally, all of this could be done without money, but until there is a much larger societal change, that's not going to happen. So two changes have to be made, how rent is paid and how people acquire their houses. Unfortunately, while the land value tax is a wonderful thing, once the process of removing the profit incentive is over, who knows how long it takes, maybe, maybe only a few years, it can happen faster than one could think. I might assume it should start to be phased out at least for homeowners a replacement could take a variety of forms from an income or wealth tax to simply using the land tax revenue from surrounding businesses so it's not applying to residences anymore whatever it is it would have to be based entirely on people's ability to pay rather than trying uh, tying it to the cost of any individual dwelling which means it should be tied to income or wealth right um, which is a problem with a lot of property taxes that, you know, people aging in place, they're retired, and yet they still have to pay the same yearly property tax. It's kind of assumed that if you own property, you're, you have like, this extended revenue that's always going to be coming in. But that doesn't happen when, you know, there's this like the dream of mass homeownership and that everyone can earn a revenue from, from the val just from the value of their home. And that's just, it's all speculative profit making, not based on anything real. Unless, unless your home price has to keep going up. How? It can't go up forever. And that leads to a lot of ugly rhetoric and things. You know, keep the poor blacks away from me. Or a single crime occurred. Oh, no. Now I, I might be, I might have to lose my house. Yeah, so he meant yeah, so he mentions, you know, land, no value value tax for residences. And this would go uh in any uh with any revenue, this would be partially fund larger projects or partially fund local resident governments. So the system of distribution would be much more controversial. Markets are generally accepted economists to distribute goods and services, since they incorporate all the aspects of supply and demand in one single price. Mm-hmm. Well there's there's the list price and then there's the price for you, buddy. However, they are also inherently limited to those who are wealthier, while as the relative cost of a good to someone making $1 million a year is always going to be lower than to someone making 50000 a year. Therefore, an ideal system of distribution would have to incorporate actual demand based on needed space and accommodation, as deftly as markets incorporate the warped demand that exists with unequal wealth. I do not pretend to know the specifics of what the solution to this problem looks like, but it is certainly going to require some tech. There 
already exist many sites today, most notably Zillow, which have existing databases for homes or houses. If people were able to upload their information to a similar sort of site, including things like family size, accessibility needs, and then select available houses that they would be interested in, an algorithm could do the rest. Figuring out which house went with who. Houses that were more desirable would still be more exclusive, but instead of going to whoever had the most has the most money, they could go to the person who would be the closest fit for it. Of course, not every house would be up for grabs all the time. People would be able to keep their own houses, only making them available when they plan to move. So beyond just assigning homes, the data collected from this process could do a variety of things. It's the kind of data that, say, Finland has. If an area had significantly more applicants than open houses, that's the sign that more housing has to be built. If the problem is reversed, then the community would either be able to renovate the homes to make them more appealing or demolish them and replace them with business space or green space. So that's the end goal. A housing system where things are determined democratically, fairly, not controlled by a global housing market riddled with landlords and banks. Now, there are some specifics that I didn't get to, and I try to address some of them below. If you have any further questions, so just reply. So here are some answered questions. Seriously, why not have a housing housing on the market? So here's an answer to that question. Why can't housing be on the market? There are currently more vacant homes than there are homeless people. Ah, uh, covered this uh, little trope before, haven't I? And people are spending larger and larger portions of their paycheck on rent, as mentioned in the, even the capitalist uh, articles. Our housing system is deeply broken, and the market system is a major reason for that. It also generally has deepened inequities in our society, and as an egalitarian kind of guy, I am generally not a fan of that. The main goal of that all this is to find a way that people can still own their homes in a functional sense while still removing the opportunity for exploitation. Tell me more about the land value tax. More good things. Of course, the land value tax does a lot more than just reduce profit incentive. In fact, the whole movement known as Georgism has existed since the late 1800s based off of its merits. The idea itself was created to prevent the boom-bust cycle of re by reducing land speculation, and it has a variety of other side effects. It encourages development and density, which is useful in areas that suffer with urban sprawl. It is also the most economically efficient tax, since all of the initial value is transferred to tax revenue, unlike most taxes which have deadweight laws. There's a Wikipedia page with good overviews of all this stuff. So I can actually, I can relate personally, you know, how it uh, reduces kind of inefficient development. So a property, you know, right now, uh, say there's a vacant lot in the hood. Property taxes on it are like $500. So there isn't really an incentive for the owner to do anything with that lot except wait until the value goes up because of, say, some luxury building built down the block or something happens that makes it more valuable, public investment usually, and they're just waiting to sell the lot. If you have a land tax, it actually raises the cost that they would have to pay yearly to do nothing with that lot because it's a lot. It doesn't have a house, so the property value is low but if you use it by land value it would be higher or it would be compared like relatively higher 
How would a land value tax be administered is the question. This is probably the most complicated part of it, as there are many ways it can be done. When it comes to determining value, most states already split property valuation between the structure and the land itself, so those existing measurements could be used. This is the system that most cities that land, uh, that land tax at a different rate use. However, it is expensive and time-consuming to redo the valuations on a regular basis. And an out-of-date value could allow a landlord to still extract extra value from their tenant, tenants, as they would only have to pay a percentage of the real value of the land if it has gotten more valuable. In these cases, the market value of the land in that transaction could be used to update the existing land value. It's kind of hard to parse out. Uh, when it comes to who enforces and collects the tax, that depends. Land value tax can be a decent way to improve a city budget, but cities can struggle to actually enforce it and keep values up to date. It could also technically be a federal tax, but that could lead to an overly complicated bureaucracy. In my opinion, the states are the ideal arbitrator of it, as they have the infrastructure to enforce while not being too large. Of course, that uh, means each individual state legislature would have to approve of doing so. But the political implications in general are another dis discussion. How would the land value tax have stopped the mortgage crisis? Well, it wouldn't have, really. While it fixes a lot of rent-seeking, there are other profit incentives that would uh, it would have fixed later. Generally, mortgages that people get a large house are completely different from paying rent to a landlord, so it would have to be solved with general ownership transfer. However, the land value tax would affect the power of the banks and other mortgage holders enough that the transfer could be done more easily. How would the government acquire the land? Don't have to go into that. Uh, how would neighborhood apartment building tenants buy their communities? While the details would come down to whatever legislation laid out the pr in the process, it would probably be similar to how residents could buy out a landlord now, just subsidized by the local government. Ideally, the process would be done through some sort of tenants union, allowing it to proceed in an organized way. Here's an interesting question. How would a resident-owned community function okay don't have to do that i've covered communes and all that kind of stuff in the past uh look at uh, my other past episodes what about the homeless and other people who are actively not housed right now and couldn't afford any sort of home so this is probably the biggest issue before housing is taken off the market entirely the short answer to this is that the steps listed above should not be taken as completely comprehensive there should also be programs to help get homeless people off the street immediately this could mean either treating any sort of addiction, mental illness they might have, or simply giving them a home until they're able to get a job and support themselves. Called like in an SRO, uh, single resident uh, occupant, single resident occupant. Homelessness and housing insecure in the housing insecure are not a homogeneous group, so the solutions would depend on the individual. Something like Norway's housing first model. And there's also questions, and I'm going to move on to that mention of tenants unions, right? So that's a big ask. That's a that's a lot of policy there. How do we get this? We build political power, of course. How do you do that? You just, we don't have millions of dollars to buy uh, politicians, right? Well, people can match money. And I don't mean money from a lot of people. I mean the people, not just their money or their small dollar donations. Because even with all the small dollar donations that Bernie Sanders gathered, 
it wasn't the same as building the political base that could win him the primary. Um, although, if it goes into long-term organizing work and actually having paid organizers and not just consultant spending it on consultancy, uh, that's another thing to talk about. Anyway, from in these times, a recently a recent article from last month. Tenants aren't waiting for the Biden administration to save them. Here's how tenant organizers are mobilizing locally to stem the housing crisis. Uh, Written by Annie Howard. The Biden administration announced a new temporary eviction memorandum on Tuesday afternoon. Although I think uh, Congress dropped the ball in actually passing it or enforcing it. A direct response to pressure from Representative Cory Bush, who camped out on the steps of Capitol to demand relief for renters. While tenant organizers breathed a sigh of relief at the development, they also criticized the patchwork and narrow center for the Centers of Degrees CDC order, which applies only to counties that meet a certain threshold for COVID-19 outbreaks. So it's just assumed that if you have a low COVID rate, it means that your economy is back and roaring and everybody's making the same income as before and and everyone's able to pay the rents just like before. Everything can be back to normal. Tenant advocates have been sounding the alarm about the eviction cliff that loomed with the end of the old CDC eviction memorandum on the August 1st. And they say Biden's new extension does not address the full scope of the crisis. Given that more than 15 million people are living in households behind on their payments, rent payments, according to the Aspen Institute, The eviction memorandum is clearly a stopgap. Much more systemic solutions are necessary, like land taxes, like demonification. Amid uh, the stark political reality, local and statewide efforts around the country point to other models that treat the housing issues magnified by the pandemic in a more systemic fashion, hoping to change landlord-tenant dynamics for the better. It's a tall order for organizers, advocates, and tenants who are already scrambling to meet the needs of those being removed from their homes. These groups are attempting to change public perception of a renter's right to secure housing. And this is the thing that kind of irks me with, uh, say, the conversation that I started this show with. A debate about what kind of housing should be built to alleviate the you know high rents. Meanwhile, people are being thrown out of their housing. It's really a shallow thing to argue about as people have suffered and continue to suffer. These groups are attempting to change the public perception of a renter's right to secure housing. With millions on the brink of losing their homes, and with cities like L.A. passing draconian new measures to further criminalize homelessness, the task of enacting housing as a right has never been more urgent. Here is how some tenant advocates are meeting the urgency of the moment by organizing locally in order to change the conversation nationally. So, amazingly enough, the first example is right here in my hometown of Albany. As in the previous month, my city council has passed Just Cause Eviction, one of those reforms mentioned in the Social Democratic platform. It's not uh, full rent control. What we what was passed last year was like a panel to investigate rent control. You know, one of those kind of things like, uh, we're thinking about it. We'll tell you in three years if uh, we're going to do it. And then three years passes, and like, oh, we were doing that? <laughs> That's what it feels like, anyway. 
One policy is one, you know, we're doing something about it, but we're not really doing something. One policy being considered in numerous municipalities is to ensure the longer-term stability of rental housing, called just cause for eviction, which would prevent no-fault tenant displacement. So the disclosure, the author of this piece is an organizer with a coalition in Chicago that's working on just such an ordinance. So just cause, which is also called good cause, for eviction, states that landlords must provide a clear reason for an eviction, while ten- uh, traditional tenant fault reasons like non-payment or rem- rent remain, just cause would slow the use of non-tenant fault evictions, which are often undertaken when a landlord wants to flip the property for more money or remove a tenant who has complained about unsafe living conditions and so on. It's a common sense approach that goes beyond measures like rental assistance or eviction uh, memoranda, recognizing that evictions will remain a concern long after the pandemic. The most recent locale to pass it is Albany, New York, which enacted the bill in July. Uh, for Alfredo Bahrain, lead sponsor of the bill, a man who owns a number of properties himself, Just Cause approaches the deeper causes of housing instability left untouched by other measures. Just Cause is looking at long-term housing stability issues, not just the short-term immediate relief that's needed. He said, um, Ballerain says, it's looking to make sure that you protect good tenants who are doing everything right and have a right to be able to live, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Before the pandemic, Just Cause was already in place in four states. They include California, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Oregon, as well as more than 20 cities. Several other cities in New York are currently considering such legislation after it was blocked as a statewide bill. Boo on New York State Legislature. While the state of Washington has adopted just cause this May. So there's a general a general policy of just pushing politicians to the left. While tenants and their supporters have fought for visionary policies that go beyond the status quo, another significant part of the battle remains focused on improving policies that are being put forth by political leaders. That's been true in California, where Governor Newsom signed a bill late June to make about $5 billion available to pay all outstanding rent for California tenants. Now the question remains of how is it being distributed. Let's see. There's the organization Tenants Together, a group that supports tenant organizing around the state. Still talking about California. The state's eviction memorandum has been extended be- uh, until the beginning of October, which is about now, at which point municipalities are preempted from passing their own additional protections against eviction for non-payment of rent until April of next year. Instead, tenants are only legally protected from eviction if they face the case of an eviction court and have completed an application for financial assistance. Given that only a small percentage of tenants have legal representation in court, and many undocumented people will self-evict due to fear of deportation, it's an approach that leaves plenty to be desired. Still, Singh, the the, uh, the argument, um, the activist, argues that more radical demands like calls to cancel people's rents and mortgages outright, as advocated by groups like Right to the City, a group I quite respect, should really be visiting them more often, maybe read some things from them, a nationwide alliance of housing orgs have improved the bill that has passed. For example, Singh notes that under the final version of the bill that has was passed, both tenants and landlords can apply for up to 100% of back rent owed, Earlier in negotiations, landlords would have received about 80%. That's a bill in order of California. I think if we haven't 
hadn't been out front making the demand to cancel rent and to cancel mortgages from the beginning, I don't think we would have gotten to the point where the governor felt compelled to say that tenants could, could get 100% of their money back. That pressure and that heat was productive. Fighting means fighting against means testing. That's another issue that I'll skip for the moment. And uh, and then this article also taught Annie talks about uh, building community land trusts. I guess I'll cover that. Uh, beyond administering direct assistance, Chainbreaker has also fought to create. Okay, let's talk about Chainbreaker then. What's Chainbreaker? That's a cool name. Let's see. It's a collective in Santa Fe. Uh, so, beyond administering the direct assistance, Chainbreaker has also fought to create what would become one of the nation's largest community land trusts. After years of trying to sell a 64-acre parcel for development, the city of Santa Fe's chosen contractor asked the city in January to terminate the contract. Even before then, the city began using the site's former dormitories for emergency housing during the pandemic, a commitment that the city recently reaffirmed until July of next year. That toehold has allowed Chainbreaker to make the case for the site to come under full community control, expanding its reach to also house mobile home users who are being displaced from trailer parks elsewhere in the city. And again, that's something happening across the country where like the owners of trailer parks don't want to be a landlord of trailer parks anymore, and they're just like forcing people out. For Garcia, it's exactly the kind of decision that would set the tone for the future of Santa Fe. The Midtown site is also where the city has its highest eviction rates. It's like a campus. Anyway, that was written by Annie Howard. Okay, I'm moving fast here. I fit everything in. Last from the housing episode of mine that got um, trashed is my last uh, article here. It's not really an article. It's a flyer. It's a pamphlet. So I've like usual, uh, I like ending a show like this uh, with basically the most radical, extremist call to action possible. We've talked about the policies of decommodification, and that article was more about the <clears throat> on-the-ground activism that's happening now to achieve some level of those things. Although land taxes aren't usually pushed for at all. Why? Because it's kind of a secondary backburner issue. You know, you have a crisis in front of you, people being evicted, switching the tax, you know, fighting to reform the tax system is not uh, directly addressing the needs of the desperate or the oppressed. But it's like, it's the, um, it's in the purview of less the grassroots organization, but the polit- a political party that represents all of those organizations to fight on the kind of higher level for the more fundamental, quote-unquote, radical reforms. So here's a pamphlet. This is uh, from the site Libcom, which stands for Libertarian Communist. So now a flyer, a pamphlet from the communists, the real communists. This pamphlet poses a set of provocations to the contemporary tenants movement. The provocations are some communist theses for the tenants movement. It's basically a call to abolish rent. So beyond organizing tenants for better conditions or, as the last article talked about, a, you know, a better deal in state spending to you know, get money back for back rent, which is kind of what they're doing now, 
uh, but to actually the goal, the real, like, you know, hidden agenda, but really don't need to hide it. We need to abolish rent or abolish the you know, profitability of it, as the last article was about. Not the last one, but the one before. Uh, there, there's, um, oh, you know, there's actually a bit more uh, jargon in these, but there was one at the bottom that had less. Okay. So basically, the first few paragraphs are just saying, like, these tenants' rights movement that just want to, like, guarantee, you know, right to not be evicted for reasons that aren't related to uh, being poor <laughs> or lack of ability to pay. And, and then because of that, you know, you have a lot of uh, landlords that are like, I won't rent to you unless you can guarantee that you will have a full paycheck uh, going forward in a whole year, which in this in precarious economic straits, you can't, or it's very difficult to. You need a certain type of job, nine to five job. Interesting. Okay. So in a capitalist society, there is no such thing as decommodifying housing. It is not necessary for a commodity to be sold at a profit for it to be a commodity. So distancing housing rentals and sales from profit calculations, including speculative ones, whether through state, nonprofit, cooperative, etc., uh, corporate collective ownership, this cannot stop capitalism from pressuring or forcing neglect to housing con conditions. It just redistributes the site at which the costs of housing are calculated. This led Engels in the in the pamphlet on housing questions, that's of Marx and Engels' fame, not to be interested in housing struggle at all. But Engels was a production, you know, based, you know, he cared about production and was organizing amid a vibrant workers' movement. The communism that many of us care about today is not about production and making things, and the workers' movement is not particularly coming back. Which is why they're kind of arguing that the like the first like the real proletariat now are actually just renters. That's the thing that really we all have in common. Uh, organizing people at workplaces is just untenable or infeasible. It just can't really be done or hasn't been done. But we can. It seems like we can organize renters. It seems to be happening. Some DSA chapters are, are following through with this. So the fifth paragraph is contrary to the fixation upon speculation as a social ill that takes away and keeps people out of homes. The housing crisis is not caused only by the excesses of, of capital, the money. On the other hand, housing crisis precedes a racial, capitalist social relation. And on the other, speculation is but a feature of our system. Today's housing crises are but one aspect of the general crisis, which is the general law of accumulation. Really repetitive wording. So today we should make the abolition of rent the communist objective to any tenant's movement. The ongoing and historic role of a capitalist landed property relation mediated by rental contracts and colonizing indigenous people, other peasants and whatever, you know, kicking people off their land, and in untethering a formerly enslaved and other racial people, racialized people, to uh, debt, wage dependence, as well as the fact that housing is a primary site of uh, social reproduction, you know, basically building communities and forming families. Uh, to compose a communist movement, you know, maybe, maybe I should make a project of basically translating this pamphlet into understandable language that isn't just jargon. 
In collective cooperative housing, land reclamation, squatting, rent strikes, among other tactics, we see glimmers of the abolition of rent. But unless these tactics become components of you know, broader movement, then they tend to be subordinated to and defeated by, well, ruling class people. Landlords, through debt, evictions, collective bargaining agreements. Today, the abolishing rent means not only not paying landlords for use of land, not private landlords, not public ones like the state, uh, not nonprofit landlords like community land trusts, and not ourselves collectively as landlords like in a cooperative, but finding ways to leverage the non-payment of rent and the free use of land into the abolition of all other racial or other capitalist relations. You know, the ways we interact now, which are so often antisocial and, uh, and a problem. So here's a note that's uh, more in contemporary language. So I seek to provoke uh, those in the tenants movement to substitute a fundamental demand, decommodify housing with the other to abolish rent. The demand to decommodify housing, decommodify housing, you know, the thing I've been talking about for the last hour, is made because it's said the crisis for tenants is caused by housing being a source of profit, often through speculation. If only, so it continues, housing didn't circulate as a commodity, then it couldn't be a source of profit and couldn't be speculated and prices couldn't be inflated. Then tenants could be housed affordably. Therefore, says the conclusion, we must remove housing from markets. We should limit profit with rent control and speculation from taxes, land taxes. We should establish social housing of various forms that basically I've been listing off. Under capitalism, including its socialist variants, social democracy, there can be no decommodifying housing. Housing is not only circulated as something that must be rented, whether it is not at a profit to its landlord, it is also produced. And you could say that this pamphlet here, this, this little rant here, is saying the same thing as my um, previous article about decommodification, where he kind of had a step three that he couldn't fully articulate, which is to end kind of market transactions. So this kind of is repeating the same thing by saying all of these things are not really enough, but they are probably necessary steps anyway. Because uh, what else are you going to do uh, besides just kind of act like you're already living in communism, which is a type of pre for, uh, prefigurative politics? Certainly and unfortunately, extremely commonly, capital improvement is neglected. And the cost is borne by those tenants who have no choice but to rent more affordable, but usually less habitable housing, even social housing of whatever form. Even if a tenant pays no direct rent out of a direct wage, their rent payment is a social rent out of a social wage, which the social landlord requires in order to pay. Social things meaning like a nonprofit or the state. Many of the specific demands under the heading decommodify housing are referred to as such because the slogan sounds anti-capitalist, though the demands may not be. There's nothing inherently anti-capitalist about a social landlord. For the demand for social housing to be anti-capitalist in practice, and not just in ideology, it must deal with the capitalist problems that persist for social housing. Now, Cooperation Jackson is one of the relatively few socialist orgs dealing with this. In their Sustainable Communities Initiative, which seeks to reduce costs through a chain of interlocking co-ops that form an eco-village. In the case of housing, 
It is a mistake for the tenants movement to fixate on the commodity form. For working class tenants, the immediate question is the reduction and abolition of rent, which is the form which these relations with landlords take, whether it's wages or other things. Uh, this is obvious in the forms of direct action that tenants usually take, particularly rent strikes and squatting. So-called decommodification in most instances shows no prospect for doing this, abolishing rent meaning, uh, or changing the overall, like, how things work. But performed unsystemically, nor do rent strikes or squatting in a permanent way do either. But the demand to abolish rent, unlike that to decommodify housing, is a slogan immediately relevant to every fight. And without organized tenants at the helm of social housing, there is no hope that social housing will actually be anti-capitalist. So it's not objecting to any of the policies that I've described. It's simply stating that it's making the case for a different slogan for the most part, a slogan that kind of is more about what it's what we're really trying to achieve here. It's honest. And with that, I'm going to head out of the show. Thanks for listening. Please contact me with any questions or, or, or if you want to collaborate, want to invite me on for an interview, just talk or whatever, I'm game. Ciao. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories, topics, or rantings you message on Facebook, Twitter at 3 Left Show. You can also email at 3leftshow at gmail. This program is made as a part of independent community radio, so support us materially, along with other producers and citizen journalists, with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. Capitalism doesn't value this work, so to support myself personally, become a member of my Patreon, which is also at 3 Left Show. Support the show with your time by telling others you believe would be interested, liking and sharing and checking in on our social media pages, as word of mouth is our best advertising. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps like Stitcher, Apple Store, and Google Play. But a full archive of the podcast, along with links, sources, and notes, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts.